Welcome to the Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. I'm Ravi Gupta, and we're welcoming back our friend Isaac Stahl from Tangle. If you have not yet, please subscribe to his newsletter at readatangle.com. And as I've mentioned before, there's a lot more going on there than just the newsletter. Isaac, a lot of news to talk about today. How are you doing? <laughs> I'm doing well. Yeah, it's crazy. We were about to hop on and we get this Trump immunity thing and also this ruling in Michigan. This mom in Michigan just got convicted of manslaughter charges in the case. Oh, I didn't for- even see that. Have you have you done your Isaac treatment on that case? Because I, it's funny, I when I when I was reading a little bit about it last week, I thought of it as a perfect topic for us because my instinct before I knew anything was to react based on the headline. I feel like it's the perfect thing where people form opinions without doing a lot of work on like, well, what actually were the facts and what should the law be? Have you done your sort of nuanced sort of review of this situation yet? We actually haven't. We've been waiting for this. So I'm super excited to jump in. I would say there are some wrinkles to it. I mean, first of all, I am... I've said before in the past, writing about a lot of the mass shooting stuff that happens in the US, that I fundamentally believe there is kind of this blame pyramid and that, you know, at the top is the person who decides to inflict an act of mass violence on people. And kind of right underneath that is the family and friends in the social circle, because in almost every story, there are always all these signs. There are people who had opportunities to warn folks to go to law enforcement, whatever. And like nearly every story has that. And so I've written a lot about that. And now we have this case where there's this mom who, you know, my understanding is she had some involvement in getting in the gun. There were things on like the day of the shooting that were kind of clear red flags. And what is a red flag in that context? And it's, I mean, obviously you weren't prepared for this. So if you, if the answer is, I'm not sure, but like, what was a flag the day of, like, what's an example? So th- apparently there was like the the parents had been drawn to the or, or called to the school because of some drawing their son had made, like a disturbing drawing. The school described it that he had made and they didn't tell school officials that he had access to a weapon and they didn't take him home. So they got a notice from the school that like he had made this drawing. There was a gun in it. It was sort of scary, which is a great time for a parent to say, oh, wow, that is actually pretty scary. We are gun owners and, you know, we need to, or or he owns a gun even, and we should probably take him out of school and get him some psychological counseling, whatever. So it sounded like in the trial, she acknowledged that she could have taken him home on the day of the shooting, but didn't and didn't believe he was capable of like committing this violence. So, you know, she also told the jury that she wouldn't have done anything differently. And so I think there's kind of like this negligence angle, which I think is a reasonable angle to prosecute a parent on in this case. So I haven't totally made my mind up about it. In the next couple of days, I'm going to have to do a lot of reading and research. But I think it's a really significant ruling in that it's going to put a lot more pressure on parents to take action because they're now being held culpable, held liable for a mass shooting, which is just like a crazy wrinkle to have in all this stuff. Wow. Well, okay. Uh, Let's shift gears to talk about this Trump ruling. So the DC circuit in a 3-0 decision, two Democrats, one Republican appointee, shot down Trump's claim for absolute immunity. Have you had a chance to read the opinion? 
This is not surprising to me because of that back and forth at this hearing over whether the SEAL Team 6 could assassinate, uh, the president could order SEAL Team 6 to assassinate political rivals. And I think in a world where that would be allowable, I'm not sure any judge of sound mind is going to want to endorse that kind of reality. I was not surprised by this ruling. I mean, I've said from the beginning that I thought if this case made it to the Supreme Court, that they were likely to rule unanimously in favor of Jack Smith or whoever you want to call it, uh, you know, in favor of the Justice Department. I'm not surprised that the appeals court is unanimous in this decision. I mean, they state pretty clearly that we are talking about Trump the citizen, not Trump the president. And, you know, he's liable and open to charges just as any American citizen would be. I think that's the right thing for a court to say. I think fundamentally the idea that a president has certain executive privileges is something that's okay. We have to accept that that's part of the job. They're going to get certain privileges. But the idea that they would be immune from criminal prosecution in instances where they committed obvious crimes, and I'm not saying Trump did, just that that's the theoretical his legal team is testing, is absurd. And I don't think any you know rational American citizen would want to live in a world where that was the reality. So I'm not surprised they did this. I think he's going to appeal to the Supreme Court because his tactics right now seem really hell-bent on just delaying this trial as long as he can. I'm hopeful either the court declines to hear it and just lets this ruling stand, or they take it up and they rule on it in a really expedited fashion. I'm almost partial to the latter because I think getting a definitive kind of 9081 type ruling would be a really, really great thing for the country. Regardless of what happens with Trump's case, I think we should just have this in writing from the Supreme Court. I mean, this is like a new legal theory being tested. And we've had sort of unchecked executive power growing for a really long time in this country. So the last thing we need is some jurisprudence saying that the president is immune from certain criminal prosecution. So not surprised, hopeful that, uh, you know, it continues to go this way. Curious to see how Trump handles this, but- um, I'm sure he'll handle it quite well. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the, well, the interesting thing here is how the Supreme Court handles this, just to, to put a fine point on what you just said, is really important. I think this court is unlikely to grant him the blanket immunity he's asking for, but the, the question is, do they just not, you need four justices to grant cert. So the question will be, do all the liberal justices all decline cert because they just want, they basically don't want to help Trump in any way with his trial? And then is there a Roberts vote and somebody else there? That's if you're the sort of cynical political calculations of the court. And or are the sort of Thomas Alito types who I, I would classify as the more political the other way? Are those folks itching to take this on, not necessarily because they're going to grant this immunity, although Thomas wouldn't surprise me, but that they would, that this would be a, a way to help Trump without granting the ultimate immunity. That's if you ever are the cynical observer of the court, which I would count myself among them. So my, my sense is this, they'll grant cert, they'll rule on this. And then you, you raise another question, well, is it expedited or do they wait until June to rule on it? That would cause all kinds of issues for Jack Smith and start to run this case closer to election day. 
Yeah, I'm curious. I, I since this news broke, you know, right before we hopped on, I haven't read the entire ruling from the appeals court. But one of the other interesting things, I guess, maybe one of the more nuanced things Trump's team was arguing was that you know his actions fighting the election results were part of his official duties as president. And I don't yet know what they said about that argument. I mean, it felt like they could reply to that argument by asking the trial court to determine whether his actions fighting the election were official acts or not. But I don't know if they address that at all. I, I have no idea if you've come across that. I don't, although I do remember the oral arguments. And, you know, roughly speaking, my understanding of this is they poured cold water on it. And in particular, there's like a heightened level of scrutiny of that argument because it's the kind of thing that you could do as president to stay in power forever. Because the election is the mechanism by which you lose your power. So if you're saying, I can break the law in service of tilting the election in a certain way, that's a, an area where the court has a particular interest in making sure that the executive privilege doesn't creep further beyond that. And as you've said before, there are extensive executive privileges, right? Like there's a reason why the Paula Jones case was told. There's a reason why even Trump's cases, like the ones that he's dealing with now, like E. Jean Carroll, from what I understand, were told. Those are civil cases even, uh, are told while he's in office. And obviously the president, like George W. Bush, for example, the reason why George W. Bush wasn't dragged in front of courts because of you know various things that happened in the Iraq war or Afghanistan or Abu Ghraib or whatever is because there is a extensive immunity that continues to be on the books for doing the job of president. But staying in power, calling Raffsenberger, taking part in the uh, fake electors schemes, like these kinds of things are not the job of the president. Uh, and it's a huge stretch. So I, I would imagine they probably dispatched with that pretty easily in the document. Yeah, I mean, I, I would too. No, nothing I've read, um, you know, I read the first couple of pages of the opinion and then I clicked into a couple of articles about it and nothing I'd read before we hopped on made it sound like there was any kind of wiggle room in their determination. So I'm very happy to see the outcome again. And like, you know, I, I hear you on all the potential ways the Supreme Court could go. I feel pretty confident that this is one that they're going to be unified on. But regardless, I just, you know, f fundamentally, I think voters should get this trial and get a verdict before the November election. I think the odds of that happening right now are pretty low. You think low, even with this, because this came in. This did happen quick. I guess yeah. that's true. Th this probably you know, they turned this around like a month. So that was a lot quicker than I would have expected. But, you know, if he appeals to the Supreme Court and they wait till June. That's the thing. That's the total, like, I think if they, they decline cert is the, I think it's a guarantee this, I mean, guarantee is probably a too strong language. It's, it's, it's super likely this trial happens before the election if they decline cert or if they, and and I and I think I'll have to look at this. Obviously, this came in so fast, we didn't have time to prep for this particular part of it. But by tomorrow, I'm I'm supposed to talk about this again. I'll look at like the the quickness by which they grant cert on certain items like this. I'm sure somebody's running that analysis right now to see like how fast can the Supreme Court even act on this kind of stuff? Because like sometimes they just issue what they call like the shadow docket opinions and things like that, right? Like so, the question is. Will they rule on this without saying anything? Because once they start to have to say something, it's going to take time. 
like if there's like you talk about like a like any kind of written opinion to get nine justices to agree because the extent of executive privilege is debatable, right? Like what's what's in my opinion not debatable is what they're asking, which is a sort of blanket executive privilege. But where the that executive privilege stops, I think is is probably a much more interesting debate. And if if they start to hash that out in the opinion, it's gonna take forever. Yeah, no, for sure. Um, that makes a lot of sense. You would know better about the timeline than I would in terms of what the Supreme Court's going to do. But before this ruling, at least, I was pretty skeptical based on a lot of the things that I'd been reading that you know we were going to get this trial concluded, I guess, before the November election. When I saw the words indefinitely next to, you know, how long it was going to be suspended off this March 4th original date, that did not seem encouraging to me. Uh, but I suppose, you know, if this, if it happens, you know, maybe it's just a couple weeks of, of trial and then, you know, there's some deliberations and then a ruling. So, you know, again, for me, I believe that American voters should get some kind of outcome in at least a couple of these Trump trials before voting. I think that would be good for the country. So primarily, I'm concerned with that happening. Well, okay, let's get to what we actually plan to talk about today, <laughs> which is on Sunday, the Senate negotiators released the text of a $118 billion bill which is aimed at improving the situation at the border with Mexico, while also providing funding for Ukraine, Israel, and a few other items that we could talk about. Isaac, you wrote about this this morning. Maybe just start with what's in this bill. Yeah, sure. So, I mean, look, first of all, I would I would say this is primarily a foreign aid bill. I know Congress is not selling it that way. I don't have to talk about it the way that they talk about it. But <laughs> President Biden has famously said, you know, don't tell me what your priorities are. Just show me your budget. And in this case, I think that's applicable. There's $60 billion of assistance for Ukraine. This is a $118 billion bill. So, you know, that alone is half the funding from the bill is going to foreign assistance for, for Ukraine. There's another $14 billion for Israel. There's about $5 billion for the Indo-Pacific region, which, you know, is basically uh, buttressing some defenses against China and I'm sure, you know, building some military bases and things like that. And then there's about $2 billion for operations in the Red Sea and $9 billion for civilians in Gaza, the West Bank and Ukraine. That That's humanitarian aid. So, you know, just doing really quick math there, that's like 80, 90 billion dollars of the 118 billion dollars in the bill. And then there's 20 billion dollars earmarked for border policy. So there's a lot of money here for foreign aid. And I think that's like a, a big part of what this bill is doing. That being said, there's policy and law changes too that that don't require any money. And that is why it's being talked about as a as an immigration bill. So you know, the thing that's getting talked about the most, I think the headline thing is that the bill gives this new authority to President Biden and Homeland Security to quote unquote, shut the border down. That's the language, again, that they use in the bill. It's a process that's really similar to the Trump era Title 42 legislation, which is 
you know, effectively allowing the government and Border Patrol to turn away asylum seekers, to deport them, to keep them in Mexico um, without any kind of processing or without any, any hearing of their asylum cases. If the border is seeing a crossing average of 4,000 people per day for seven days, uh, they have the option to pull the shutdown lever. And if crossings hit 5,000 people per day as an average over the course of a week, then it's mandatory that this shutdown provision happens. Republicans were critical of that provision because it gives President Biden the ability to sort of avoid it. He can just say it's in the national interest not to do this and then effectively undermine the entire provision. Is that true? Even if it's above 5,000, he has that authority? Yeah, he can. Th- there's sort of like this this national interest clause that uh, allows him to basically work around that, which, you know, on the one hand, I understand why that's a point of criticism from Republicans. On the other hand, no president is going to just give up and, you know, handcuff himself to something like this and totally give up control of the border in that way. I don't think we've ever really seen that in American history. So I still think this is going to be effective. I mean, if we were seeing, you know, if this bill went into effect right now, it would trigger the shutdown clause because we're hitting these numbers right now. And it would be political suicide, in my opinion, for Biden to have that triggered and then invoke this sort of national interest thing and undo it. So I don't think he would do that. I think it's sort of just like a footnote to try and maintain some sort of autonomy in the event it was ever needed. But, you know, it's a good talking point from Republicans. It's also worth noting that regardless of those numbers, the bill sort of keeps this appointment threshold a day if people are coming, if asylum seekers are coming through the CBP-1 app, which the government created, or entering through a legal port. I think it's like 1,400 appointments a day remain available, even in the shutdown scenario. So, you know, it's not like nobody would be able to come across, but it would be a really effective way to stop the flow and to deter migrants. And I think given the situation on the border, it's actually a pretty good provision. Um, So that's a big one everybody talked about. And then there's a lot of other stuff in here that from my view are mostly Republican political priorities, longstanding Republican priorities. So there's, you know, basically an increase in the threshold for which someone can be uh, qualifying for asylum. They make claiming asylum basically harder. They fund new judges and asylum officers and border patrol agents. And as part of that- endorsed by the the union for the the border patrol. Yeah, the border patrol union endorsed this bill. They're expediting the whole process for processing people. They're dumping money into the border, uh, like the, the entire border system, like the whole ecosystem from- judges and immigration officers all the way down to border patrol agents. To detention facilities too, right? To detention facilities, to technology on the border. So there's a lot of money going that way. I mean, $20 billion again. And Democrats get a few things here and there. They're they're getting uh, a pathway to citizenship for Afghan refugees who were evacuated during our withdrawal from Afghanistan, which, by the way, I think is what we should do. I mean, absolutely. Some of these people are translators Exactly. Put their lives on the line for us. It, it would be insane to me not to do that. 
And then they bump up the number of green cards per year, I think from 32 to 50,000, something like that. And they're opening some doors to spouses of people on visas here to get uh, certain work permits, basically. That's the big stuff that Democrats got. Not a lot in there for them, honestly. There's also the guaranteeing of legal counsel for child migrants, which, you know, is a Democratic priority. But from my perspective, this is a really, really Republican-centered, conservative-focused bill as far as immigration restrictionism goes. And I'm a little surprised to see so many conservatives who are turning against it. I'm sure we're going to talk about that and the, the dynamics of it. But yeah, just to just to explain that. So House Speaker Mike Johnson said the bill was dead on arrival in the House. And Biden says he would sign it if it came to his desk. Obviously, not all conservatives are against it. Uh, Jim Lankford, Republican from Oklahoma, was co-sponsor of the bill, helped negotiate it. The Wall Street Journal editorial board called it uh, a border security bill worth passing. Noah Rothman in the uh, National Review had some pretty colorful language uh, supporting the bill. And this is my cynical episode, Like, but there's no other way to, I, I don't think there's any other way to look at this other than cynicism. Like this is, the Republicans to me on this one can't take yes for an answer. And the only explanation to me is politics. Because if this were on substance, this would be one of the biggest substantive wins they've ever had. If we were in 2020, and President Trump was in office and Republicans were controlling the Senate and Democrats had a thin House majority and there was a deal like this on the table, Donald Trump would sign it and Republicans would endorse it almost you know, unanimously. The reality is that Trump would have loved to get a bill like this across the finish line and never did because Democrats obstructed and you know, the border wasn't in the kind of situation it was now. So the politics of it sort of ran against the Trump administration. All this stuff was just viewed by the public. And what Trump was doing on the border was viewed by the public as being a humanitarian disaster. It was all about family separation and things like that. Well, and maybe maybe be a little kind to the Democrats here and say that at least my reading on them, and obviously it depends on where, where we go back, is they always viewed it as a negotiation. So they were always like, okay, we need dreamers. We need to increase legal immigration, all these types of things that aren't anywhere near here. And my sense is there was a lot of people at the table for that discussion. And obviously some people got close to earlier bills for this, like Kennedy and, and McCain, for example, were really, really close. And we, I mean, we could talk about that, but I don't really blame Democrats uh, exclusively for that. You know? I mean, tr- Trump also killed those negotiations by insisting on a 3,000 mile border wall, which like shouldn't go you know, a 2,000 right. mile border wall. Right. I mean, he, he, that, that was a non-starter. And I think Democrats were right to resist that. I think a border wall like that is idiotic for a lot of reasons, but that, that was one of the biggest things was, you know, he claimed he was going to do this and get Mexico to pay for it. And there was no way to do that via legislation. Anyway, I mean, I would just say like, I have a lot of conservative readers who read Tangle and many of them have written in and basically said, you know, Biden created this disaster. If he wanted to fix this three years ago, he could have. He could use his executive authority to improve the situation right now, and he's not. And he's just supporting this bill as a political tool to hurt Republicans. And I actually don't think that's true. I think Biden is supporting this bill because 
he is doing terribly among voters when they're asked to compare his immigration policies to Trump. He knows that the border is a huge issue and it's a mess. And he trusts the people who are negotiating the bill where there was a lot of compromise and a lot of concessions. And, you know, again, I think conservatives came out way, way, way in the win column on this. And the fact that Biden is saying, put this in front of me and I'll sign it is a sign of how bad the current immigration politics are for him. And this is one of the best chances Republicans are ever going to get to pass something like this. I mean, even in the event that Trump wins in 2024 and they take back a couple seats in the Senate, which is totally possible, they're probably almost certainly going to lose the House majority. And even if they didn't, they would need 60 votes in the Senate to pass something like this. And they're never going to get seven or eight Senate Democrats to vote for something that goes further than this bill does. I mean, this is about as far as Democrats are going to go. There's no DACA. There's very little increase in, you know, making it easier for legal immigrants to come here. There's very little boost in the number of work visas. There's, again, almost nothing that have been longstanding Democratic priorities. So I think it's a little nutty that they're totally rejecting this. I think the reason why is pretty obvious. You know, Mitch McConnell sort of said the quiet part out loud that this is an election year. Donald Trump has come out against the bill. They believe- By the way, it Biden, came out against it before it was released. So it right, tells you everything. And mischaracterized what was inside it. I mean, lied about what was inside it. And, and you know, McConnell said, if Biden passes this, basically, it's going to look really good for him in the election. I mean, the Republican senators are saying that out loud. They're conceding the fact that Biden does this. He's going to be able to say he got the first comprehensive immigration reform across the finish line in decades which would be a good thing for the country, but bad for Trump in the election. And so that's the big holdup. And it's hard not to read that stuff and just feel like, Jesus, like is th this is really where we're at. Like we can have the situation be as bad as it is. And but you know, what I've said to a lot of those readers of mine who have written in, I'm like, I'll concede every single one of those arguments. This is all Biden's fault. He wants this in order to, uh, you know, have, have a better campaign line against Trump. This is all electoral politics, whatever. The question is whether the bill will actually make the situation better. And it probably would. So Republicans should support it. it. It's also a standard, like if that's your standard, and I, I have listeners too, like I would say probably the majority of our listeners who are pretty alarmed about what's going on at the border. And now, uh, you know, we say at the border, but it's really everywhere. It's outside my my door. If your standard is, if because he's doing this because of political calculations, you want to support it, then then you then there's no piece of legislation in the history of America that you'd support because politics are involved in everything. I forget who said it, but, you know, follow the incentives, right? Don't follow the promises, follow the incentives. And in this case, the incentives for Biden are to get this done. He's listening to those incentives. You could render whatever judgment you want in November on him uh, as president, but we should pass this bill. Like this would improve the situation. If you're alarmed about th what's happening at the border, this is the best it's gonna get. I would add one more thing to that too, which is even if you're gonna take the, the most cynical argument, which is that Biden is just doing this because the political headwinds on immigration have turned against him. People are upset about the border. He's polling terribly on immigration. He's losing to Trump. His job as president is to be responsive to the electorate. That is literally the point of democracy. Like, like 
if he's looking around and saying, oh, wow, people really hate how I'm handling this issue. So I'm going to change how I'm handling it. That's good. Like that, it, to me, is not a bad thing. We should be totally supportive of the fact that he's looking at polling and saying, oh, wow, Americans actually don't like how I've been doing this. I'm going to change how I'm doing this. That's a perfectly fine reason for a president to, to change positions or to change his tactics. So uh, that is not convincing to me at all in terms of being a reason that we shouldn't be supportive of Biden getting behind this bill. Well, one thing that could be going on here, Isaac, is there are a few sort of main lines of attack against the president. And there's a lot of data out there that the most important indicator of a person's chance at uh, re-election, an incumbent president's chance at re-election, is the economy. And we were met with some continued positive economic news this week. So the economy grew 3.1% from the end of 2022 to the end of 2023. Uh, this beat expectations. I always love that line because it's like, where's the expectations coming from? Uh, including great growth at the end of the year. And you index that against all of our competitors. Like internationally, we are outpacing folks. The employment situation continues to be strong. Um, the Labor Department said that employers added 350,000 jobs in January. This is the highest monthly number in a year. Uh, it also revised its December job growth upwards, uh, more than $100,000 to 330,000 jobs. Uh, there's a lot of indication that real wages increased last year by over a percentage point. So even taking into account inflation, and there are all these numbers for consumer confidence. There's one from the University of Michigan Consumer Segment Index, that jumped. Uh, and there's also this thing called the Comforts Board, which I'm sure you know more than I do, but people say these are two good measures of consumer confidence. Uh, that jumped in the past two months as well. Uh, and the key component of it, this is from how you wrote it up, uh, in which consumers rate their current economic situations is closing in on its recent high from February 2020, uh, which is right before the COVID pandemic. So people are starting to feel good about this economy. They are employed and overall the economy surging. And for those people who have money in the market or 401ks, the S&P is at or near records. This seems like good news. Oh, and futures markets indicate, I mean, and these are just futures markets, but they, at least the oil market seems to be, seems to believe that oil prices will go down this year uh, mm -hmm. or at least stay stable. But obviously there could be another war that changes that. So who knows? This is sort of the light at the end of the tunnel Biden's been hoping for and his team and his campaign have been talking about. I, I said from the beginning that, you know, from the beginning of inflation, there's a long tail on, you know, consumer sentiment as it's related to economic realities. It takes a little while, a delay for, for those realities to come down into sentiment. So, you know, one of the things that happened early on that people have now totally memory hold is that in the early days of inflation, three or four months in, there were a lot of economists ringing the bell, but consumers were totally not worried about it and not feeling it. And the Biden administration was kind of saying, yeah, oh, like th this stuff's so overblown, just go ask the American voter how they feel. And they're not talking about these price increases. And that was like a real talking point from the Biden administration was the voters are not upset about this. Tons of pundits on the left were writing of like, this inflation thing so overblown. And then, you know, a couple of months after that, the inflation reality started to settle in with voters. Gas prices went up, groceries got more expensive, house prices went through the roof, rent went up, and then that consumer sentiment plunged and it hadn't really come back yet. So 
you know, four or five months ago, all these economists are starting to say, hey, inflation is dissipating. We're inching towards this sort of much coveted soft landing and the consumer sentiment still sucks. And like we're in this vibe session where voters feel like there's a recession. They feel like the economy's awful, but actually all the data sets is pretty good. And we got that long tail again. And now I think that sentiment is catching up to some of the realities we're seeing in the data. So I think this is for Biden, this is like the best news possible to have some some sentiment changing on the economy. I think there are other good signs even outside of that. And I talked about this in our piece when we wrote about this, which is eight in 10 Americans say they're happy with where they're living right now, even renters. And that's been a huge thing is, you know, the housing prices and housing crisis have been a really strong driver of sort of uh, unhappiness among American consumers. 63%, so almost two and three, rate their financial situation as good. And a lot of people think 2024, I think 85% think they can change their personal financial situation for the better in 2024. So that's all the really great news for Biden. I would point out as one caveat, just that he's coming from a really bad position. So the sentiment getting better on the economy is good news for him, but it's still not great compared to where Trump was. Some of these sentiment indicators, for instance, rate the consumer sentiment right now as lower than where it was during COVID under Trump when everybody was working from home and the economy was doing awful and there were all these layoffs and everything. And so, you know, that just gives you some extra context about kind of the basement it's crawling out of. So I think there's still a long ways to go. But again, that could also be framed as good news for Biden, which is like the sentiment's improving. And this is only really just beginning. And the ceiling is way higher than where we are now. So if things keep trending in this direction, that's going to be really good for him. I think that's like his best hope at re-election right now is that trend continuing in the direction it's in. Yeah, probably that plus Trump continuing to go down this path, you know, where the cases break a certain way and he becomes more visible and kind of reminds those who didn't vote for him last time why they might have made that decision. You know, I I continue to think that Trump is still the favorite in this race, but I think this is if you're if you're making the case for Biden, uh this is where it starts. You do you think Trump's the favorite? I do. Yeah. Um, wow, why do you think that? Well, I think it was razor thin last time and now Biden's not running on these sort of like, first of all, like, so it was razor thin last time. Now Biden's the incumbent, which used to be a good thing. Now it's a bad thing because of the way that our media environment works and the way people's attention spans work. And instead of the promise of stability and all this kind of stuff, he's, he's governing on the reality. Uh, I think he's got a lot of things that he can point to that I think are promising. And he's got some things that he's got to answer for. In the end, it, it comes out for me like, like that he's worth voting for again when put up against Trump. Uh, but I do wish we had an alternative in the Democratic Party instead of him. But I also think that he is now four years older uh, by the time he'll be campaigning again in earnest. And he, he, I don't think he was necessarily like crystal clear and crisp last time making the case for himself. I think it's going to be much worse this time. And he's going to have to deal with Trump getting up and saying, like, this is just my economy. That's why the economy is doing well, is people are predicting I'm going to come back. And 
Trump's going to make stuff up and Biden's going to have to be like think quickly on his feet and all this, and he's not going to be able to do it. And then his alternative messenger in Kamala Harris is just not credible. Like the American people don't really look to her for any kind of leadership whatsoever. And if Trump is smart, he will pick somebody who is younger and clearer and can make a case to the American people. So I, I do think it's, you know, and, and Trump's homogenous sort of base, like we have, we talked about this with David from a couple of weeks ago, whereas by all accounts, both ideologically, culturally, and racially, his base is way more in line uh, with each other than the base of the Democratic Party, which is incredibly fractured right now, whether it's Gaza, whether it's even this immigration bill itself, uh, whether, you know, whether it's, you know, moderates, never Trumpers, you know, Gen Z, black voters, Hispanic voters, white suburban voters, you know, it's just like, it's such a diverse coalition um, with certain very unhappy people. And so I think like, you know, you look at polls, for instance, of the Arab American community or Gen Z or on the margins, hemorrhaging support in African-American community and the Hispanic community. These are real problems for Biden. And in order to dig himself out of that, he's got to be able to communicate well. And I just don't see that. That's my pessimism. Yeah, no, that I think that's a well-stated case for sure. I still think Biden is the favorite only because I think independent voters and leaners are going to determine the election. And I think Trump has totally lost them in a way that's irredeemable and they're not coming back. And if anything, more people are going to join that over the next few months, you know, once we get some rulings in this case, if they go against Trump and or, you know, as Trump just becomes more visible, I would say, you know, I think the best path for Trump is if a serious third party contender comes in and a lot of those votes go to that person. We're planning to do an Undecided Voters podcast series. We're going to interview and track a bunch of uh, Undecided Voters on Tangle. So I'm really interested to see where they land. But I would say from doing some screening calls and speaking to some of those people so far, there is a really, a really, really palatable dislike for Trump that's going to be really hard for him to overcome. And, you know, no great third party alternatives that appeal to some conservative um, perspectives yet. So that's the interesting wrinkle is the third party plus no voters. I could see a lot. I could actually see turnout go down in this election because I think yeah. there's a lot of people turned off by this election. And I think that's a wild card. I, I think on balance that hurts Biden, but you never know especially because he relies more on highly educated voters who tend to have higher turnout. And, you know, when if it's a lower turnout race, that's why Democrats have outperformed in all these other races. Trump's base, though, does come out when he's on the ballot historically. So we'll see what happens there. Yeah, the other wild card is Trump himself. Like, he, he does not help himself, in my opinion, as we get closer to these things. And I think the messiness around his legal cases, I can't imagine helping him unless... He gets some not guilty verdicts. Uh, I think if he gets some not guilty verdicts, that could be interesting. Yeah. So it's something to keep an eye out. So we'll put in the show notes. There's an article by uh, Noah Smith in the No Opinion newsletter that does the international comparison on the economy, which is really interesting. It stacks the US up against other uh, countries like Japan, Canada, France, Italy, the UK, Germany, and it's startling. Uh, and he actually starts to give some theories as to why that's the case. We'll also put in the show notes this Economist article about like the history, and I think these histories are always imperfect because our politics is so different now than it's ever been. But basically looking at economic data to say, okay, 
there's like this lagging data, like how long does it take the American public to to basically internalize good economic news and how much does it matter in the presidency? And they make this, you know, I would say eye-popping uh, data. The Economist doesn't necessarily say this, but they quote political scientists who basically say that this the economic data we're seeing right now would be equivalent to Bill Clinton's 1996 margin, <laughs> which I want to say is just not like it's way too precise and it's, it's it, it was way too long ago different america but you could read it if you're a nerd for that kind of thing let's quickly talk just for a few minutes here because we don't have a lot of time so we had these hearings on the hill you wrote a great piece we'll put it in the show notes about these senate judiciary hearings about social media mark zuckerberg apologized uh, josh holly went after zuckerberg he also went after the tiktok ceo there was a lot of colorful stuff going back and forth. At the same time, uh, Meta's stock went up like 30% in the past week or some <laughs> absurd amount. So my only takeaway is, number one, the senators were castigating these CEOs and saying, you have blood on your hands. And I'm like, if you believe that we should be regulating these social media companies, which is a big if, the people with blood on their hands are the senators because they're the ones who haven't done anything. Like how many of these hearings have we watched? Now we could have, well, we should, and we'll have a whole other segment about whether th- those regulations are actually make any sense. Two is it shows you how much the market doesn't take them seriously either. That nobody thinks these regulations are coming. And Meta stock price is a perfect example. And you can look at any other stock, like this Magnificent Seven. You know, are like if you if you invested only in these stocks, you'd have like a hundred percent return over the past. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, the market doesn't seem to think that these senators are in any way relevant to this discussion. Yeah, no, I, I I don't think any real regulations coming. I think the one bill that we've seen come out of the Senate is the COSA, and I think it's the Kids Online Safety Act or something like that, which has been rightly just torn apart by um, the electronic. Freedom Frontier, Frontier Freedom, can't remember their exact name, EFF, and the ACLU, who have all talked extensively and written extensively about how it's a huge threat to, you know, online freedom and privacy because the bill is written with extremely broad language to kind of protect people from harm and gives government actors authority over, you know, declaring what is and isn't harmful, which is you know, just a scary idea. I mean, any administration you can imagine coming into power in the next 50 years would then have some sort of administrative control over, you know, what can and can't be published on the internet or what can be advertised on or whatever. So I I certainly don't support bills like that. I do think there's the Section 203 stuff, which I'm a huge advocate for Section 203 because I think it has created the the current state of the internet we well, have. Can I pause you on that for a second? Yeah, go ahead. We don't have enough time to talk about this, but if you think about one of the many things that makes the US economy stronger than Europe, for example, it's the fact that Europe has gone down this path of over, in my opinion, this is me totally editorializing, over-regulating the internet. And if you look at why is the S&P 500 so strong, it's largely on the backs of the, the tech sector in the United States, Right. Uh, now, it's complicated because this is the very sector that's cutting jobs. So I'm not sure that we as uh, as citizens should be like, the, what's good for the tech sector is good for America, right? Because there's a lot of just mom and pop stuff going on around America that is a whole other discussion as to why the American economy is so resilient. 
this is all gets to my white polarization could be good sometimes because I do think it's part of that. Like why the U.S. has has basically kept regulation at bay in part because of our paralysis, which you know the EU and some of these other places have have gone too heavy. I think. But I do think that they've strangled the internet economy in their countries. And if you're an internet startup, you're coming to America. That's where you're starting your company. Yeah, no, definitely. And and I think the reason Section 230 is so important for a lot of these companies is not just because it protects them from immunity or, or, it, or it creates this immunity for them from, from lawsuits. And one of the things that I've said is, I actually think there's space for certain carve-outs there. Like, I, I, I do think a plaintiff should be able to sue YouTube if they can prove a like really strong direct connection between something YouTube's platform or algorithm did and some sort of personal harm or danger they were put in. The issue with a lot of these cases that have come up and even a lot of the things tied to these social media hearings yesterday is that there often aren't those direct connections. You know, sometimes there are instances of somebody being like exploited on a platform like Instagram. And sometimes there are instances of kids bullying people inside school and also on social media. And then the social media platforms are supposed to be held liable for that, which is a really squishy thing and not something that I would get behind. So yeah, I mean, clearly there's not a ton of belief that this regulation's coming. I thought a lot of what we saw was just your normal Senate theatrics. I think if they were really interested in doing something, they'd be working on a bill. They'd either be, you know, we'd see more co-sponsors around COSA. We'd see amendments to it. We'd see people changing it. I haven't seen any of that really in earnest yet. So I'm very skeptical any of that's coming down the pike. Yeah, there's the funny moment when Zuckerberg turns around and apologizes. If you, you look carefully, what you'll see is a bunch of people pulling out their phones to capture him apologizing. Now, where are those videos going? Now, and where are the videos of the senators? Like, why are they grandstanding? Um, are they grandstanding for the people in that room? You should ask yourself, or are they grandstanding so that they can get engagement and trend on the very platforms of the people they're castigating, right? These are some of the power users of those platforms. So it's, it's, they're not credible. The, the market doesn't think they're credible. Zuckerberg clearly doesn't think they're credible. He had probably the best week of his life. Like it's, you know, it's the anniversary of Facebook. What was it, 10 years now? 20 years? What is it, 20? It's gotta be 20. 20, yeah, 20 years no of Facebook. Thing, yeah. And, oh God, 20 years. 20 years <laughs> of Facebook. And his stock went up more, like, I think it was 20 something percent the last time. I think time. it was 30, yeah. Yeah, I mean, it's absurd. Well, okay, with that, Isaac, thank you so much. Everybody go out there and subscribe to readtangle.com. Thanks for listening. Remember to rate, review, give us that five-star review. Uh, those qualitative reviews really help. Send in voicemails, 321 Thank you very much, everybody. Bye.